Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Muslims Want to Know, the show where I try to answer the questions you have about the Bible and Christianity. I'm your host, Reverend Eric Mason. Before we get to our question today, I want to remind you to hit that subscribe button and leave a review. The more reviews the podcast receives, the more it comes up as a recommendation for others. And the more it comes up as a recommendation, the more other folks get a chance to hear answers to their thoughtful questions. And speaking of questions, if you have a specific question you want addressed on this podcast, feel free to email me at revericjmason at gmail.com. And if you want to support this podcast, feel free to email me at that same email address. Again, revericjmason at gmail.com. As always, each podcast builds on the information from the previous ones. So if you're joining us for the first time, I recommend going back and listening to the previous episodes before resuming this one. Here is our recap. In our last episode, we answered the question, why are Christians allowed to draw Jesus? In that episode, we learned a lot about church history and the theological difference between icons and idols. We also traced how those differences played out in the history of the church. You and I looked at portions of the Bible and writings of a man named St. John of Damascus. Together, we learned that Christians are allowed to draw Lord Jesus for a variety of reasons. First, because those depictions are not meant to be worshipped. And second, because the images of Lord Jesus are meant to draw us into the life of the triune God as we reflect on the stories from the Bible and on all that Lord Jesus accomplished. And third, because artist depictions of biblical events and stories have been a powerful means to communicate the stories from the Bible to those who cannot read. Now, because our last episode revolved around Christianity, public worship, and the arts, I thought it'd be great to follow up by talking about the next logical topic. Today, we will be answering the question, why is music so important in Christian worship? This isn't a particular question that comes up very often. That is, of course, until you visit a church for the first time. Whether as a guest of a Christian friend or as a student looking to learn more about Christianity, one of the things that stands out in the worship of Christians is the amount of music sung throughout the service. Also, depending on the church service you attended, that music is either at the beginning and the end of service or spread all throughout the service. It's something you might participate in or something you might also listen to. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to tackle this question today. To answer some questions you may have had, and also to prepare you for your first or next experience in a church. And another reason I wanted to do this episode is because music is a huge part of my life. Not many people know this about me, but aside from having the title of Reverend and hosting this podcast... I also have a bachelor's degree from Eastern Michigan University and a master's degree from DePaul University, both in music performance. In fact, the music for this show was composed and performed by me in a sound studio. 
and the other featured songs in a few of the other podcasts were arranged and performed by me as well. So music is very near and very dear to my heart, and I'm very much looking forward to talking more about it with you. But before we look at answers to our question for today, let me open with a brief prayer. God, open the eyes of our hearts that we may hear your words and understand and do your will, for we are sojourners upon the earth. Do not hide your commandments from us, but open our eyes that we may perceive the wonders of your law. Speak to us the hidden and secret things of your wisdom. Enlighten our minds and understanding with the light of your knowledge, not just to cherish those things written, but to seek after you by doing them. Amen. So, why is music so important in Christian worship? The very short answer is because God reveals to us throughout the Bible that an acceptable and blessed part of our worship of him is through the use of music. Now, obviously, it's a little bit more to it than just that. So for today, I want to answer this question by dividing this podcast into two sections. Section 1, Music in the Bible. Section 2, Music in the Church. Section 1, Music in the Bible. Throughout the texts of the Old and New Testament, music plays a vital role in the worship of God. When Moses led the Israelites through the Red Sea, we are told that he and the Israelites sang a song of worship to God. And this song was written and sung to commemorate all God had delivered the Israelites from. And after the Israelites miraculously crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, we are told that the Egyptian army tried to follow only to be destroyed by the waters of the Red Sea by God. And after this, Moses recorded what happened next. Exodus chapter 15, verses 20 through 22. Then the prophetess Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women came out following her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. Now, I think one of the takeaways from this passage is the fact that dancing, singing, and the playing of instruments were accepted by God as being good and valid forms of worship. Later on, in the Old Testament, the author of the book of Second Chronicles records a scene in the life of King Solomon. King Solomon was instructed to build the temple of God in Jerusalem. At the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem, the priests sang and played music in worship to God. Second Chronicles chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Now all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves regardless of their divisions. When the priests came out of the holy place, the Levitical singers dressed in fine linen and carrying cymbals, harps, and lyres, they were standing east of the altar, and with them were 120 priests blowing trumpets. The Levitical singers were descendants of Asaph, Haman, 
and Jeduthun, and their sons and relatives. The trumpeters and singers joined together to praise and thank the Lord with one voice. They raised their voices, accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and musical instruments in praise of the Lord. For He is good, His faithful love endures forever. The temple, the Lord's temple, was filled with a cloud. And because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now to me, if there was any moment when God should have told the people that music and musical instruments were not valid expressions of worship, this was the moment. And yet, in response to the dedication of the temple, the worship of the priests and the people, God blessed the moment by filling the temple with his glory. No book of the Bible has more songs in it than the book of Psalms. Fun fact. According to the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary, the English title Psalms is derived from the Greek psalmoi, which means songs of praise. The book of Psalms contains 150 songs within it, and these songs were meant to be sung with instruments. The preferred instrument most likely played while singing through the psalms was the lyre, which was an ancient stringed instrument. The lyre eventually evolved into the instrument we now call the harp. Although each psalm is a song, the most famous psalm that typifies the call to worship with both voice and instruments is Psalm 150. Psalm 150 sings or reads like this. Hallelujah! Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His powerful acts. Praise Him for His abundant greatness. Praise Him with the blast of a ram's horn. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and flute. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Like art, music is a wonderful means to remember the past while at the same time offering worship and praise. After the resurrection and ascension of Lord Jesus, His close followers composed songs to remember all He did and all Lord Jesus will do when he returns. In a letter written to the church in Philippi, Paul includes one of the earliest hymns which were written by the closest followers of Lord Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11 through 11. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Now, up until this point, you and I have been discussing music, which was sung and played as an offering of worship to God by people here on earth. But God also reveals through the biblical authors that the spiritual realm of heaven is full of singing and the playing of musical instruments as well. Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. When he, Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, took the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered, and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands, plus thousands of thousands. And they said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea and everything in them say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one who seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. You and I have not exhausted all that can be said about music as it is found throughout the Bible. But what you and I can take away from these accounts is this. The worship of God through song and music is something which is clearly accepted and blessed by God. The music throughout the Bible is clearly sacred in nature, is meant to help us remember all God has done and will do for us, and draws us closer to the love and life of God. Although the music and instruments described in the book of Revelation sound much like our own, the music which will be played and sung after our bodily resurrections will be music of a different dimension, scope, and pitch as we sing and play in the new heavens and the new earth. Section 2 Music in the Church In Christianity, music is divided into two categories, that which is sacred and that which is secular. Although secular music can influence sacred music through rhythms, scales, and melodies, secular texts are not to be sung in place of sacred music. Throughout the history of the church, text has traditionally been the most important feature of Christian music. The words of sacred music have either been taken directly from the Bible or depict biblical truths. But one thing remains the same throughout the ages. The text is always meant to draw us closer to the triune God. For over 2,000 years, the church has worshipped God using music. 
Unfortunately, musical notation did not exist in the ancient world, so we don't actually know exactly how the earliest songs sounded. We do know a few things, though. We know that the earliest songs evolved out of the scales, rhythms, and melodies that were sung in the Jewish synagogues of the first century. We also know that the text of these songs was the most important part of the early music of the church. Songs were used to teach the stories of the Bible and to teach all that God has done for the world through the sending of his Son, Lord Jesus. We also know that as the family of God grew throughout the years, the music of other cultures shaped the songs of Christianity. In his book, Te Deum, The Church and Music, Paul Westermeyer writes, As long as the Christians were Jews, the musical practice of Jewish chant prevailed. But when Gentiles joined the young church, Hellenist musical thought and practice also came into play. The result of Jewish and Hellenistic interpretation eventually led to what we now know as Gregorian chant. Gregorian chant is an interesting development when it comes to the music of the church. It's associated with Pope Gregory I and evolved out of a style of unison singing that had been the norm in Christianity since the first century. Singing in unison was the typical style of the church for quite some time. And this is because communal singing was as important as the text being sung. Everyone involved in that unison singing sang joyfully together. It was a way in which the community could participate in worshiping God and worshiping Lord Jesus together. Unison chant, or Gregorian chant, finally received a system of musical notation in the 9th century. And it's after this that some interesting things begin to happen when it comes to music in the church. You see, as music became more standardized, music began moving away from congregational singing. Professional singers began to lead the music, while the congregation mostly listened. And at the same time, because music could now be notated, a new emphasis on the loftiness of the text occurred. And this resulted in ethereal melodies that became less easy to sing and to remember. Now, as music in the church evolved throughout the years, single melodic lines eventually gave way to a mixture of melodies, of harmonies, the inclusion of instruments, and even more complex musical structures. There were still times and moments of congregational singing, but by and large, the music of worship was now relegated to professional choirs. Now, I personally believe that God has designed us to worship him as a community through many ways, music being one of those very important ways. Therefore, it was only a matter of time that the people would correct the lack of congregational singing. And that's exactly what happened in the 16th century. In the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation began in the church. The Protestant Reformation was a watershed moment 
when it comes to music in the church. And it should be noted that some of the Protestant reformers wanted to change nothing about music in the church. Others wanted to get rid of music altogether. But there was one Protestant reformer who would have a great impact on congregational singing in the church. In fact, the greatest impact on congregational singing in the church. And that man's name was Martin Luther. Among other things, Martin Luther reintroduced communal singing of hymns to what were called chorales. Luther's chorales were short songs with accompaniments and easy-to-remember melodic lines. They were often led and sung by choirs and the congregation while being accompanied by instruments. In response to the Reformation, the Catholic Church held what is called the Council of Trent. Among many things discussed at this council was the topic of music. The council re-emphasized that in music, the text, above all else, should be clear. Now, although it didn't completely reform music in the Catholic Church or create brand new congregational singing, it did pave the way for the composition of some of the most beautiful pieces of music in the Catholic Church. And those compositions were by a man named Giovanni Pierluigi da Palestrina. And if you get a chance to listen to some of his compositions, I totally recommend you do that. As a result of the Reformation, the 17th through 20th centuries saw whole movements of hymn writing in the form of chorales in many different countries, languages, and people groups. In fact, the Catholic Church eventually incorporated chorales into communal worship in the 20th century itself. And in the 21st century, many of these older chorales and hymns are integral parts of worship within the church. However, in the last 30 to 40 years, many new trends in Christian worship have begun to take shape. Part of the challenge, beauty, and allure of Christian music today revolves around the composition of songs. Finding a space in which the music is singable, the text is clear, and the underlying harmonies and rhythms communicate the richness and depth of the text is a difficult task. Now, I personally am in agreement with many of the standards of worship of music throughout history. I believe that musicians should continue using the Bible as our direct source for the text of our music. And in addition to this, any theological or biblical truth should be clearly stated and then tied into the stories of the Bible as well. But in the West, and in particular America where I live, many of the songs written for worship are beginning to blur the line between that which is secular and that which is sacred. Songwriters are now writing songs that are less grounded in the direct text of the Bible and theology of Christianity. In addition to this, many songs are no longer about a communal worship experience. Instead, they're written focusing on the individual's subjective experience with God. I must say, not all churches are using this kind of music, but, but many are, and it's a very concerning trend. I mention this all for very specific reasons. 
If your Christian friend invites you to a church service, or if you're going to a service for educational reasons, take note of the music being sung. Reflect on the words that are being sung within the service. And if you have questions about what you heard, ask your Christian friend about it later. Or you can always send me your questions on Facebook by visiting the Muslims Want to Know Facebook page, or even by sending me an email to RevEricJMason at gmail.com. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining me. I hope and pray that as you continue to seek God, you ask for visions and clarity on all these Christian claims. And if you'd like some good resources on the material I covered today, I recommend taking a look at Te Deum by Paul Westermeyer, The New American Commentary on Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon by Richard Malick Jr., and also the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary. I also recommend the CSB Study Bible, which of course is the Bible translation I use. And if you don't have a Bible, I recommend downloading the YouVersion app and selecting the CSB version from the list of translations. That's YouVersion, as in Y-O-U version. And that sound means it's about time to wrap up. Before we close our time together, I want to remind you to hit that subscribe button and leave a review. The more reviews the podcast receives, the more it comes up as a recommendation for others. And the more it comes up as a recommendation, the more other folks get a chance to hear answers to their thoughtful questions. Speaking of questions, if you have a specific question you want addressed in this podcast, feel free to email me at revericjmason at gmail.com. If you want to support this podcast, feel free to email me at the same email address. Again, that's revericjmason at gmail.com. Well, from my home recording studio in the Little India neighborhood in Chicago, Illinois, to wherever you're listening, I want to say thank you so much for continuing our conversation. Thank you, and God bless. Thank you.